Welcome. I'm Jordan, and this is The Analytic Christian. Today you're going to hear a really strong argument against Molinism. I'm joined by Dr. Philip Swinson, a professor of philosophy at the College of William and Mary. Before doing this interview with Dr. Swinson, I considered myself a Molinist, though I did have some unanswered questions about the view. But after doing this interview with Dr. Swinson and thinking about it some more, I now consider myself agnostic about Molinism. I tell you that because that should get you excited to listen. You might just change your mind. So without further ado, let's jump in. Hello, Dr. Swinson. Hello. Thanks for having me. I've been wanting you on the channel for a long time, and I'm glad we finally got it worked out. And this is going to be a really exciting topic, and I think it might cause a little bit of a stir, but I hope that it's a good one. I hope those watching listen with an open mind. What we're going to do is lay out what Molinism is first, and you'll say some nice things about it. And then we're going to explore the two arguments that you have against it. So let's jump right in. What is Molinism? Good. Um, so uh, the the core idea of Molinism is that God can know God knows not just what I will do, uh, but what I would freely do. What in what all of us would freely do if we were placed in various uh, circumstances, right? Um, so uh, God can know things like. If Curly were offered uh, a chance to freely steal a thousand dollars from his employer, he would take it, right? Um, and uh, facts like those are called counterfactuals of creaturely freedom, or CCFs, right? So if you hear me say CCFs, I just mean facts like if Curly were offered um, a chance to freely steal, he would take it, or facts like um, you know if Philip were in this exact circumstance right now. He would, uh, he would raise a water bottle, right? Um, so those are what that's what CCFs are, right? Um, so the cool thing about God knowing those CCFs is that God can then decide uh, what situations to put people in based on His knowledge of the CCF. So He can say, uh, if He wants, say He wants somebody to steal. Uh, he can put Curly in the circumstance where he w- he knows he would freely steal. He can say, "Oh, Curly would steal in that particular circumstance. Let's let's put him there." Um, or if he doesn't want someone to steal, he can say, well, "I'm gonna make sure not to put Curly in that circumstance." Um, so that's the, that's the basic idea: is God knows these facts not just about what we will do, but what we would do in various different circumstances if we were in them, and then He can use them to sort of arrange things the way He wants, right? He can make sure that the stealing does happen or doesn't happen uh, based on his knowledge of these CCFs, his knowledge of what we would do in various circumstances. Yes. So let me ask two follow-up questions there. I've heard from several people now that this term counterfactuals of creaturely freedom is not the most appropriate term because not all of these are actually counter to fact. And so I've heard some, I think, refer to them as contingent fact. Or how would you, if you don't use that label, what label would you use? 
Yeah, I guess another term you could use would be subjunctive conditionals or something. Okay. Uh, I agree that yeah, it, you know, the name implies that it's counter to fact when, but some of these importantly are going to be about situations we're actually in, uh, so they aren't counter to fact. So it's important to realize whichever name you use, it's important to realize that God knows uh, what I would do in the circumstances He actually puts me into, even though those circumstances are not counter to fact. Yeah. Yes. The second question I was going to ask was, who are some of the most prominent Molinists in in Christian, I guess, among Christian philosophers? Yeah, good. That's that's a good question. Um, well, Alvin Planning uh, famously used it in his uh, free will defense. So he is one. Um, another important one is uh, Thomas Flint, who wrote a whole book defending Molinism. Um, so he's another uh, very important one um, as well. Okay, so I hope that's enough for the the viewers to get the get the at the heart of Molinism here. So you you are going to mention a couple of nice things about Molinism before we offer an argument against it. So what were these two things you wanted to say about it? Um. Okay. Well, well, the first one isn't and nice or mean. It's just a fact. It's just. Um, <laughs> Well, I guess I think it's nice because I agree with them about this. So Molinists are standardly what is called incompatibilists, right? So incompatibilists think that if everything was determined ahead of time, no one would be free and no one would be responsible for their actions, right? So if God just determined what we would all do, we wouldn't be free. We wouldn't be responsible. Um, so uh, or if just blind nature, like the past and the laws of nature determined what we all would do, we wouldn't be responsible, right? Um, so uh, that's one uh, important component of Molinism is that they are incompatibilists, right? Um, and, uh, but so now for the, uh, the cool thing, which I kind of already mentioned a little bit, is that Molinism doesn't just say that God can know these facts, right? It doesn't just say that God can know what I would do in various circumstances, what I would freely do, right? Um, it says God can use them, right? He can use them to make sure uh, that what he wants to happen happens, right? So if he if he doesn't want me to steal and he sees I would steal in this particular circumstance, he can just uh, not put me in that circumstance, right? Um, and so that's really cool because it gives God a lot of control, a lot of... Um, ability to, to providentially control the world uh, without determining what happens, right? And that's the really attractive thing about Molinism. Um, so I was a Molinist for a long time, and what attracted me to it was uh, this idea that I could get God a lot of control over what happens without saying that God determines what happens, right? He can control what happens by using his knowledge of what we would do uh, in various circumstances to arrange things to turn out the way he wants. Um, so I think that's one really attractive thing about Molinism um, is that it, it gets you that high degree of divine providence without determinism. Uh, the other attractive thing about Molinism is just it seems correct that there are these facts, right? It seems we, we say things like, yeah, if Philip were offered a bribe, he wouldn't take it. He, he, even if he was free, he wouldn't take it. Uh, because he's not, you know, that's not the kind of thing he would do, right? Uh, it seems like we we talk as if there are these facts about what people would do, what freely do in various circumstances. Um, and uh, so if there are those facts, 
well, why couldn't God know them? And then why couldn't God use them, right? Um, so I think that's another thing that's attractive about Molinism. I'll mention just briefly, because I see Taylor Sear in the live chat, on that first note there about incompatibilism, if you want to get a little better sense of what uh, the view incompatibilism says and how that contrasts with uh, compatibilism, then you uh, should check out my interview with Taylor Sear on that. It's, it's a short one. I think it's like 35 minutes long. So I'll make sure there's a link to it in the description of the video. Okay, so those are a couple of things to note about Molinism. So now what I want to do is get, you're going to offer two arguments. So we'll start um, with your first argument against Molinism, and this is a dilemma. So go ahead and lay this out for us. Okay, well, so, so before I get to that, I'm going to first introduce a principle that I will use in both of my criticisms of Molinism. So um, uh, this is the principle of a, the fixity of the independent, right? So the fixity of the independent says an agent cannot do something uh, that's incompatible with facts that are not explained by their choice, right? So um, you, uh, the, the idea here is that there are some facts that are beyond my control and I can't do anything incompatible with those facts. And the, what are those facts? Those are the facts that are not explained at all by my choices, right? Um, so uh, to, get, to, get the, uh, to get the idea here, um, so think about facts like uh, uh, Reagan was president in the 80s. Um, there's not, I think I can't do anything incompatible with uh, Reagan, I can't, Reagan being president in the 80s, right? I can't do anything that would make it that he never was uh, president in the 80s, right? Why? Because uh, that's something that doesn't depend on my choice, right? That's true, independent of what I do now. Or uh, take the sun will rise tomorrow. I think there's nothing I can do that's incompatible with the sun will rise tomorrow. Why? Because that's true, independent of anything I do now. Uh, but other facts, um, uh, like uh, Philip will be on campus tomorrow. Well, I can do something incompatible with that. I can decide to stay home. Why? Because that truth depends on what, what I decide to do now. Um, so the fixity of the independent cap nicely captures um, this idea that certain facts are beyond our, our control, right? And uh, a nice thing about it for incompatibilists is that it can uh, explain why we think determinism would rule out uh, freedom, right? Because we can say, look, uh, the distant past and the laws of nature is um, not dependent on what I do now, uh, so it's beyond my control. Or similarly, uh, imagine uh, God was determining everything that happened by divine decree. We could say, well, uh, God's decrees don't depend on what I do now, so uh, they're beyond my control and I can't do anything incompatible with God's decrees. Uh, so that's the principle um, hopefully that gives you a basic idea of it. Um, okay. Uh, so now, um, this, so I, as I said, I was a Molinist for a long time and it was this question that, uh, just by thinking about it for years and never having something ha that I was happy with to say about it, uh, that led me to, uh, stop being a Molinist. So, um, here's the question. Are the CCFs, are the facts about what I would freely do uh, that are involving that involve my actual choices, explained by my choices or not, 
right? So suppose um, it was true that I would freely decide to uh, have this conversation with you, right? Um, is that explained by my decision now to have the conversation or is it not explained by that, right? Or take another example. Suppose there's a circumstance in which I told a lie yesterday, right? Yesterday I told a lie. Now, um, there's this fact. Philip would lie. Philip would freely lie in circumstance C, right? The circumstance I was in when I told the lie. Uh, let's call that fact L. Um, so the question is, is L explained by my choice to lie or not? Um, and I think that creates a dilemma for Molinists, right? We Either way they go, if they say it is explained by my choice to lie or it isn't explained by my choice to lie, uh, they run into trouble. Um, so that's the setup for the dilemma. Um, so if okay. that makes so sense. So I want to make, I wanna make okay, sure I'm, I'm tracking with you before we get into the two horns of the dilemma here. Yeah. So, yeah. what It seems like that principle is very non-controversial at least to me like it certainly seems to me like there are facts that just aren't up to me that don't they're not explained by anything that i've done um so uh i don't i don't want to get into potential objections yet i'm just that that seems very plausible okay so then you said are these actual uh, counterfactuals of creaturely freedom uh the, the ones that involve my actual choices like choosing to do this interview tonight is that explained by my choice or not so i'm going to stick with uh Good. Well, Good. well that that's an example but you chose the freely lying so was it um was was your choice to lie in circumstance c explain wait yeah help me with that so yeah. so yeah yes let's say yesterday i told a lie right and and it was true um according to molinism that i would freely lie in that circumstance right and then the question is is that fact that i would freely lie in that circumstance that fact god knew way back ah. when right uh is that fact explained by my choice to lie or isn't it Okay. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm following now. Good. All right. Well, let's explore the two horns. So, this first horn um is this where the person says yes? This is where they say no. They say Okay, this is where they say no. My choice to lie doesn't even partly explain the fact that I would freely lie and see. Like the fact, you know, that that CCF that God knew, right? Suppose um uh, it's not even uh, partially explained by my choice to lie, right? Okay, so then we have a little argument here. Okay, I'll also suppose that I am in C, right? I am in the circumstance where it was where it was true that I would freely lie in that circumstance. Okay, so then premise one is if I can do anything other than lie, then I can do something incompatible with the truth of L, right? Where L was the fact that I would freely lie. And C, right? Uh, premise two, but since L is not explained by my choice to lie, I cannot do anything incompatible with the truth of L, right? Because remember, right now we're on the horn of the dilemma where we assume 
that uh, L was not explained by my choice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so since L was not explained by my choice, I cannot do anything incompatible with the truth of L, right? Um, that comes from the fixity of the independent principle. Mm-hmm. So conclusion, therefore, I cannot do anything other than lie. Um, so this, I think, is a bad result for um, a lot of Molinists, at least, you know, Matt, think about my former self, uh, who was a Molinist, because I believed, and I still believe that uh, you're only free and responsible for what you do if you could have done otherwise, right? Um, so if you think that's true, then we end up on this horn with a bad result for the Molinist that um, I cannot do anything other than tell the lie, tell a lie, and then it looks like I am not really free. If you accept that to be free, you need to be able to do something other than what you did. Um, now there are some people who reject this claim uh, that you need to be free. You need to be able to do something other than what you did. Um, so we can. I'll talk later in the objection section about whether that's a, a good way to go. But uh, so for now, the objection the the objection here is if we take this horn, it turns out you're not free because you can't do anything other than than tell a lie. Okay. Yeah. That I I was tracking with that. That made. Uh... Very good sense. So w- one thing, I guess, from interviewing Taylor Sear, uh, and and this may be a different discussion, um, but I'm I'm very open to compatibilism. These mm-hmm. uh especially Frankfurt cases, they just they make a lot of sense to me. <laughs> uh yeah. So if someone if someone's a compatibilist, this conclusion wouldn't really trouble them, right? Well, it depends what kind of compatibilist they are. So I think you're talking about what's often called uh, semi-compatibilism, which says we don't need alternative possibilities to be morally responsible, right? And um, yeah, if they accept uh, if they accept that, then that conclusion will not trouble them. There's another type of compatibilist who thinks we do need the ability to do otherwise to be responsible, but that's compatible with determinism. And they would still be troubled by this conclusion, but they would none of them would accept the fixity of the independent anyway. So they would never have followed me here uh, to begin with. Um, okay. But I just, I want to note that if you're a compatibilist, you don't need Molinism in the first place. Because God can just directly determine everything that happens. So um, I think we should focus on how incompatible should react. Sure. Yeah. The yeah, argument. yeah. Because um, uh, if you're uh, a compatibilist, uh, why would you even worry about whether Molinism could work or not? You, God can just determine everything and we're still responsible for it. Yeah. Um, but there is a type of incompatibilist who's convinced by the, the examples you mentioned, the Frankfurt cases. And they say, yeah, even though incompatibilism is true, you don't need the ability to do otherwise to be responsible. So I think that's really important because that's a way out. Um, and I think uh, William Lane Craig uh, even suggests that for the Molinist uh, at one point, that, that maybe they should just give up PAP. Or, sorry, give up the view that alternative possibilities are needed for responsibility. Um, so I think we should talk about that in the objection section. Yeah. And it'd so we'll, be great if you brought up the Frankfurt cases then too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll just table that for now. Yeah, but, but that's hopefully good. this, it's this good first one that. has made sense to people. If your answer to the question is no, 
that fact, fact L, is not explained by my choice to lie, then this is, you end up with this conclusion, you cannot do anything other than lie. And that, that's, that spells trouble. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the next horn, then, the second horn, lay this one out for us. Okay, good. So now we suppose, suppose we say instead, oh, in the cases where I end up in the situation, then the fact the CCFs um, are explained by my choices. Why is it true that I would freely tell a lie in circumstance C? Because I was in that circumstance and I chose to tell the lie, right? That's what explains, uh, or at least one thing that explains the truth of L, right? Suppose we say that. Well, now we don't have any problem with the fixity of the independent anymore, right? Because um, because uh, L is dependent on what I do now, right? L is explained by my free choice, right? So we don't have that problem anymore. Um, but what I think we end up with is a different problem. We end up with uh, an explanatory circle. So an explanatory circle happens when... Uh, you have A explaining B, explaining C, and then C explains, goes back and explains A, right? Uh, so here, here's an example, right? Suppose, um, suppose uh, I spend my money to buy a time machine, and I use the time machine to travel back in time, um, and then I put, and then when I get back in time, I put money in my bank account that I can then use to buy the time machine. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an example of an explanatory circle where my buying the time machine explains my uh, traveling back in time and putting money in the account. And then my having the money in the account explains my buying the, the time machine, right? Um, so, uh, here, so here's the explanatory circle I think we end up in if my choice does explain L, right? So L, you know, Philip would freely, freely tell a lie and see. Therefore, God knows L. Um, and if we imagine God is using his knowledge, right? He puts me in C because he knows L, right? So uh, L explains God knowing it. God knowing L explains God putting me in the circumstance, maybe because it's important to his plan, his providential plan that someone tell a lie. Uh, but my being in the circumstance at least partly explains my choosing to tell the lie in the circumstance, I couldn't have done that if I weren't even put in, a, in the circumstance, right? So it looks like um, him putting me in the circumstance explains my choice to lie, and then we're assuming my choice to lie explains L. So we end up in an explanatory loop. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking at this line. I want to make sure I'm, I'm tracking. Yeah. So... We've got this fact. God knows that fact, L. And God uses that knowledge, uh, that that fact, and it's a counterfactual of creaturely freedom. Uh, so he uses that fact um, in his decision to put you, Philip, in that circumstance C. Okay. Uh, so then he puts you in that circumstance C, and you choose to lie, but then you're choosing to lie 
explains it takes us right back to the start right, right back okay, around the fact right. you're choosing right. to lie explains the fact and now we're back and then we're in a circle okay okay i got yeah. you so this this so I, you know I, you know i i flirted with with this for a while but this is a problem for me because i just really don't like explanatory loops um they seem impossible to me um uh maybe here's an example to help you uh feel the weirdness of them right so suppose Suppose um, you were saying, I wonder why, why the universe exists. And someone gave you this hypothesis. Well, the universe exists because uh, in the future, we're going to invent a backwards time traveling universe generator that will generate the initial state of the universe. So my, my reaction to that is that's not a good explanation or that, of, of why the universe exists. Why? Because it's a circular explanation. The universe had to exist, you know, in order for us to invent the universe generator that then generated the universe. And that just seems impossible to me. It seems impossible. It seems like it's impossible for reality to be structured in a circle like that. So that's why mm -hmm. I'm opposed to explanatory loops. Interesting. Uh, okay. My mind goes to an interview that I did with Andrew Moon, where we we made this distinction between logical circularity and epistemic circularity, and um, I just I'll have to think more about uh, explanatory loops. If like all explanatory loops fail, like you gave an example, and right. maybe that I'm just thinking off the top, but perhaps that example only characterizes a subset of explanatory yeah. loops. But perhaps there's a more plausible type of explanatory loop. Yeah, that, that's a, a really good point. Um, and th this is why I ended up uh, trying to develop the second argument I'm going to give. It's because I was talking to uh, Justin Mooney, who I believe you know, um, and he was saying he thought the Molinists should just embrace explanatory loops and try to make it seem not so bad. And Justin's view, at least in the conversation we had, was certain types of explanatory loops are not so bad. And those are the type when there's also another explanation that comes in from the outside, right? So suppose we add to the story I told, remember I told the story about going back in time and putting the money in your account. Well, suppose in addition to the money I, I put in my account after time traveling, there already was enough money for me to buy the time machine. Well, then we have sort of a kind of over-determined explanation of buying the time machine. It's partly, you know, maybe I thought, Suppose the time machine costs $200,000 and I have a million dollars in the account. I thought, oh, yeah, I have enough money to buy the time machine. Well, that's partly explained by the money I put in after time traveling, but it's partly explained by um, money I already had anyway. And Justin's thought is that type of explanatory loop isn't nearly so bad. Um, and, and he thought maybe the Molinist could try to get this explanatory loop to be like that one. Um, so I don't agree with him. I, I, I still want to oppose all explanatory loops. Um, but this made me want to try to find an argument where we could avoid, um, the explanatory loop issue. Okay. So if we can summarize the argument thus far, uh, this dilemma for Molinism, I like the way Justin Mooney summarized it. He put it in the live chat. He said, here's the argument in super short form. Either this fact, L, 
is independent of my action or it isn't. If it is, then my action is not free. And that comes from the fixity of the independent. If it isn't, then there's an explanatory loop. That's that's what you run into. Yes, that's that's the original argument that got me off of Molinism. Yeah. Okay. All right. So my understanding is, and and you can share the backstory, you shared this argument with Justin, who at the very least is sympathetic to Molinism, if not a Molinist. I've interviewed Justin on Molinism or on one one topic within Molinism, how God knows these facts. Um, so if you're interested, check that interview out. But share the backstory because Justin, when he heard this argument, he pushed back a little. Yeah, good. So he, he just pushed back in the way I already mentioned. We're saying, hey, maybe loops aren't so bad, at least certain types of loops, right? Uh, so that caused me and Justin and another guy, uh, Andrew Law, the three of us to try to, we, we ended up talking a lot about this. And I, and I think we hit on an argument that avoids the explanatory loop issue. Um, so that's the argument I want to present uh, next. Okay, yeah. So let's go to that. Now, this is the second argument. Right. Okay, so lay this one out for us. Okay. Um, good, yeah. So um, suppose, so this argument relies on the thought that God can have like plans or intentions or there's at least facts about what God would do that don't depend on my CCS, right? So God has some big picture goals or, you know, plans that he doesn't get them from looking at my CCS. Um, so that, so that's an important, um, important idea. Um, so suppose God intends to make sure that whoever is in circumstance C tells a lie. Maybe he has some big goal, big plan where how things are going to work out great if someone tells a lie in this circumstance, right? Where it will lead to maybe that person learning something important and making a big difference in the world or something, right? Um, so, um, and be because of this, God has this intention, right? Um, whoever is in circumstance C uh, is someone who would tell a lie in C, right? Um, and we'll call that intention IG, right? God's having IG means that he would only put me in C if I would freely tell a lie, right? Because he, he's going to make sure whoever's in C would tell the lie, right? Um, now suppose I am in C, right? So God has put me in circumstance C. And remember, he would only do that if I would freely tell a lie. So then we can argue like this. If I can do anything other than lie, uh, then I can do something incompatible with God having IG. Uh, but since God's having IG is not explained by my choice to lie, right? He had this big picture goal. You know, whoever's in C is going to tell a lie that was independent of me. Um, I cannot do anything incompatible with God's having IG. And that comes from the fixity of the independent, just like we saw before. Um so therefore, I cannot do anything other than lie. I should say this is a simplified version of the argument. So don't blame Justin and Andrew if this version is bad, but uh, it captures kind of the basic idea, at least. Okay, so then this one, the conclusion lands you right back on the first horn. Exactly. So it, it, it avoids the possibility of just embracing explanatory loops 
we get back to this problem uh, that I cannot do anything other than lie um, if we accept the fixity of the independent. So that's the cool thing about this this argument. All right. Um, okay, so we're about halfway through the interview, so I think it's a good time to go ahead and start thinking of some objections to these arguments. So what objections might the Molinist raise in response to these two arguments? Yeah, good. So um, there are a variety they could give, but uh, one important one is one that you already brought up, which is they could reject uh, the claim that you need uh, the ability to do something other than lie in order to be responsible for lying. They could say, yeah, you could, yeah, you know what, the conclusion of that argument is exactly right. You couldn't have done anything other than tell a lie, but still you're free and still you're um, responsible, right? Um, and you mentioned uh, the Frankfurt cases as as a motivation for that. So maybe we should talk a little bit about, about those. Um, so yeah, Frankfurt, so- Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you you'll you'll be a better expert than me. You can give us a Frankfurt case. Yeah, good. So so Frankfurt cases try to give examples where it seems like you're responsible even though you couldn't have done otherwise, right? So um, imagine there's an evil neuroscientist who wants you to vote for a certain candidate for president, right? Um, candidate A, right? So he puts a chip in your brain, uh, and his plan is like this. Um, if you if you decide to vote for A on your own, he won't do anything. But if you show any sign of uh, maybe going for B or doing something other than voting for A, he will use the chip to take over your mind and compel you to vote for candidate A. And the thought there is supposed to be that um, uh, that. Um, you're responsible. You know, now imagine in the actual scenario, you just do it on your own. Nobody, he doesn't make you do anything. He doesn't do anything at all. He just watches. It seems like you're still responsible for what you did, even though um, you couldn't have done anything else. You couldn't have done anything other than vote for candidate A. Um, and so, um, uh, so, and, and so um, it looks like we have a case where you're responsible, even though you couldn't have done otherwise. Um, yeah. Yeah. So if that's right, the Molinists could just say, well, who cares if you couldn't have done otherwise, right? Um, but I don't think the, the examples work. So notice that things still could have gone differently, right? Uh, it could have happened that um, you showed a sign of voting for B and um, he had to use his chip to make you vote for A, right? And um, what I've argued in a paper with... Uh, co-author Justin Capes, is that um, what that means is you actually could have done something else. You could have refrained from voting for A on your own. You could have omitted to vote for A on your own. Um, and so you still did have an alternative possibility in, in that example. Um, and now people have come up with a whole bunch of different variations of these Frankfurt cases, but it's you find over and over again, there's always some kind of lingering alternative where you know he, the person could have done something else and it's really really hard to find a case where it seems like they're responsible and there's no lingering alternative and i actually think that's evidence for the principle of alternative possibilities for this claim that um 
you need alternatives to be uh, responsible because why, you know, why can't we find a clear case uh, where, where these come apart if you, um, if you don't need alternatives? Okay, so the dialectic here is you've laid out this dilemma for Molinism, and this person wants to take, say, the first horn, and based on that principle, you land up saying, well, you, uh, you weren't free after all but they want to say no you can still be free in the sourcehood sense in the sense that i'm the source of the decision uh even if i didn't have alternative possibilities open to me and what you want to say is actually no you still have this lingering open uh alternative possibility um even even if you couldn't actualize it you were there's something there where you you could have forced the hand fact, to go fact, a different way. You could way. have actualized it. You could have refrained from doing it on your own and forced him to use the chip. Um, and that's something you could have done. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, all right. So that's one response. And then the other response, I guess, is even if you concede the point and say, Okay, you're you're correct, Molinus, that you you can be uh, free in in that sourcehood sense. But then, why are you a Molinist? Because you you're saying that you don't even need you, you basically don't even need Molinism at this point because you can your decisions, your freedom can be compatible with determinism, whether it's uh, like a, a in terms of the laws of nature or God's decrees or whatever well that would be a response to someone who took the frankfurt cases and said oh since i don't need alternatives i'll just become a compatibilist but there are people called source incompatibilists who say yeah you don't need alternative response alternative possibilities to be responsible you just need to be the source of your action but mm -hmm. if determinism were true we couldn't be this or if god determined what we were going to do we couldn't be the source of our action so that response wouldn't work to them okay um but let me say, I have a couple more motivations for, um, so the principle of alternative possibilities says um, you're only morally responsible if you could have done otherwise, right? Um, and I think uh, there's a lot to be said for that, you know, besides just talking about these Frankfurt cases, right? So one is, it's a very intuitive excuse that we often give. So like, imagine you're tied to a chair and so you didn't pick me up from the airport when you said you would. And I get mad and I say, why didn't you pick me up? If It seems very natural for you to say, I couldn't help it. Um, so I'm not, it's not my fault that I couldn't pick you up, right? So it's an intuitive excuse, right? It's also um, the, it, a very nice explanation of our reaction to certain cases, right? So there's this case that I talk about in a lot of my papers called Sharks, where you're walking along the beach, you see a child drowning, you evilly decide not to try to help the child. Um, unbeknownst to you, there were sharks in the water. And if you had tried to rescue the child, you would have been killed by the sharks and the child would have drowned anyway. A lot of people want to say that to that case that um, you are responsible for not trying, but you aren't responsible for the death of the child. And then the qu question I would ask is, what's the best explanation 
of the fact that you're not responsible for the death of the child. And I think the best explanation is you couldn't have done anything about it. Yeah, and, 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 you know, because you couldn't have done anything about it, you're not responsible for it. Um, you are responsible for not trying because you could have tried. Um, and, and so I think uh, that's another motivation for this principle of alternative possibilities uh, is, is the thought that, um, yeah, it's the best explanation of why you're not responsible in, in certain cases. Um, and okay, the last motivation, so suppose, suppose uh, it's true that we don't need alternative possibilities to be responsible, right? Suppose we grant that to this source incompatibilist Molinist, right? Um, well, still, I want to say it's still intuitive that I often do have the ability to do otherwise, right? So it's, you know, it really feels to me that like uh, right now I could raise my hand, even though I'm not. Uh, so, but if Molinism implies that uh, we often don't or usually don't have these alternatives, even when it seems like we will, that looks like evidence against Molinism, even if alternative possibilities aren't needed for responsibility. It's still conflicting with part of our common sense picture of the world that we often do have these alternative possibilities. All right. So that is a, a potential objection that the Molinist raised on that first horn. And we went, we explored some of the back and forth that could happen there. So now let's shift to the second horn. What's what kind of objection can the Molinist raise here? Oh, I see. Um, yeah. So, I think the uh, the main, or at least a good one, is just uh, the one we talked about from Justin Mooney that maybe not all explanatory loops are bad. Um, so uh, I think that's um, a nice way to go. Um, or they can try to say there's not really a loop uh, because there are different senses of explanation in play between the different arrows. I think that's uh, something Tom Flint suggests at one point. So I think there's different ways they could try to um, respond to the loop, um, the loop issue. But that's why I wanted to give that second argument. So we, I'd be nice to just if we can even bypass that, you know, um, and say, yeah, even if you're right that loops are okay, or there's not a bad kind of loop here, it doesn't matter because we have that second argument. You still have to reject um, the fixity of the independent, or you have to reject uh, for the principle of alternative possibilities. Okay. Okay. All right. So we've talked about what Molinism is. We gave you two arguments, some objections, some responses. So if it's okay with you, you want to shift to... Can some... I do one, talk about one more objection? To oh, yeah, yeah, order? yeah. Go for it. Um, so the other big objection is just to reject the fixity of the independent um, and say, hey, we, that's just not true. Uh, we can do things that are incompatible with uh, facts that don't uh, depend on our choices. Um, I do think there's a cost, a big cost um, to that because that principle so nice, as you kind of, I think saw it so nicely explains why we can't do anything about the sun rising tomorrow or the, why we can't do anything about the law of gravity. Um, and another, another really nice thing about it for uh, theists is if we think about, um, if we think about, um, free will in terms of this uh, in, uh, print, uh, fixity of the independent. We can give a nice 
solution to the problem of freedom and foreknowledge, right? So why can I be free to raise my hand or not, even though God foresaw a thousand years ago that I'd raise my hand? Well, I want to say um, that's because uh, God's foreknowledge is actually explained by my raising my hand. Uh, so it is that. So God actually can peer into the future and see what I do, and that explains why He believes what He believes. Um, and so, if you have this fixity of the independent picture, you can say, "Yeah, uh, foreknowledge is okay as long as God's uh, beliefs are explained by my future choice." And it explains why God's foreknowledge is different from Reagan was president in the '80s. I can't do anything about Reagan being president in the '80s because his being president wasn't explained by my choice, but I can do something about uh, God's past belief because his past belief is explained by my choice. So that's that's maybe an extra motivation for theists to want to keep that fixity of the independent type principle. And if you're interested in that question about God's foreknowledge and human freedom, the compatibility there, I'd encourage you to go check out my interview with Dr. Taylor Sear. He laid out, I think, five different answers to that question. So, and, and Philip's view was one of them. That was the dependence view. So you can check that out for more. Okay. Uh, are you okay going to live Q and a now? That sounds great. All right. So the, the live chat's been very active. And if you have a question for Dr. Swenson, then go ahead and put it in the live chat. Now just type the word question at the beginning, it makes it easier to find. I'll pause and give you a second to begin typing. <laughs> now let me interrupt you. While you're typing, if you value the work that I'm doing here on this channel, please consider becoming one of my patrons. Right now I have to work little side jobs to help make ends meet, but if you support me financially, it allows me to devote more of my time to doing producing content for this channel. So please consider becoming one of my patrons. You can go to the link in the description of the video and sign up for any amount you choose. I really appreciate all the patrons I currently have. All right. We do have some questions coming in. So Barely Protestant asked, how is Dr. Swenson not conflating the necessity of the consequent with the necessity of the consequence? So I didn't say anything about necessity did i i just said i just made claims about what we can and cannot do um so i i i, I wonder if he's thinking there's some way to translate the fixity of the independent into claim a claim about uh, necessity um but i'm not sure or uh, hmm. it's not at least it's not coming to me right away how you would do that um so the nice thing about um, the fixity of the independent is uh, we don't have to try to formulate like the, the, the sense in which uh, the past is necessary or the laws of nature are necessary or something, which you see uh, and sometimes when people argue for incompatibilism. We can just appeal to this fact that I can't do anything incompatible with facts that are independent of, of me. All right. Barely Protestant had a, a second question. Does Dr. Swenson think that God's omniscience is temporal? I'm inclined to think so, yes. Um, uh, 
but I don't. Um, I guess I I don't have a big problem with thinking it's timeless uh, if people have theological reasons for preferring that or something. Um, but yeah, I'm inclined to think God is in time, so He's literally peering into the future, um, you know, and seeing what I what I do. Um, but you could have a timeless view where God's in some timeless realm, timeless state, and my choices in time explain what he thinks in the timeless state. And then um, my view of foreknowledge could work the same way on, on that sort of view. All right. Brando asked, uh, what is your view as it relates to what best explains the scriptures? I would suggest Molinism does the best at explaining what appears to be contradictions. Yeah. Um, I do think uh, Molinism, uh, or, you know, or we could talk about like uh, Molinism and um, theological compatibilism where God determines what we do and we're still responsible. I do think they have an easier time handling, handling some uh, passages or scriptural data than um, what you might call lower views of providence, right? Um, there's some... Um, there's some passages where uh, uh, it looks like God saying, you know, it never entered my mind that this would happen or something, which Molinists might have trouble with. So I think the biblical data is probably uh, somewhat mixed. But I think if I had just the biblical data to go on, I would probably go with Molinism or uh, theological determinism or something more high, uh, high providence. Yeah. All right. Andrew Moon asked, don't most defenders of cosmological arguments reject explanatory loops since they don't want the universe to explain itself? Could they help with rejecting explanatory loops? Yeah, good. That's that's a good question. Um, so if you're someone, I'm, I'm moved by cosmological arguments. So uh, I kind of think, um, look, there's sort of three ways three things you could say about, you know, the origin of everything. You could say um, uh, there's an infinite regress, right? Everything that happens has something prior to it that happens, explains it. Or you could say there's an explanatory loop, or you could say there's a first cause, right? Um, and I regard all three of those as like weird, right? Uh, but I guess, I think explanatory loops and infinite regresses are super weird. Um, and I, then I just find them so implausible that I push towards a first, a first cause. So if you have these kind of intuitions, I do, that says no infinite regresses, no explanatory loops, uh, then you might find it natural also to reject explanatory loops in the context of Molinism, just like you're, you're inclined to reject explanatory loops when you're thinking about cosmological arguments. Okay. I don't know the name here. I'm sorry. But the question was, what do you think of the grounding objection to Molinism? Yeah, good. Yeah. So the grounding objection to Molinism says, you know, kind of asks like, what grounds, um, uh, what grounds these facts like L, that if Philip uh, were in C, he would freely fight? What grounds these CCS, right? And I, I think that there's something to that objection, but that was never enough to get me to not be a Molinist. I was fine with saying, well, maybe they're primitive truths or um, 
this is this is there's a recent paper by Alex Proust and Josh Rasmussen that actually tries to give explanations of um, these CCFs. That you know, it, it it sort of mimics how incompatibilist libertarians about free will explain our actions and uses that same framework to explain the CCF. So I think you might actually be able to, if you're a Molinist, be able to explain uh, why the CCFs are true. Uh, so uh, I was never um, convinced by that grounding objection that that was a big enough objection um, to give up Molinism. I do think it's weird if you have to say that they're primitive, unexplained truths, uh, but I, I guess I thought the advantages of Molinism were enough to just accept that uh, if I had to. Okay, uh, some more questions. Let's see. Um, what do you think grounds God's knowledge? So I, I guess this could be a, a totally separate interview, um, but I, I'm interested in understanding your simple foreknowledge view because, um, well, go go ahead and answer this question. I may piggyback on what you said. Yeah. Yeah, good. So I have a sort of a schema. Some people have said it's not that there's not enough here to really be an explanation of God's knowledge. But this is the way I think about it is. Um, uh, so I would say God is essentially the best possible being, um, a perfect being. And knowing stuff is better than not knowing stuff. And so the fact that God um must by his nature have these perfections explains why he knows all the, all the facts. So why does God know all the facts? Because he has to. Why do, why does he have to? Because um, it's part of his very nature to be as good as possible. Uh, so he he knows it's his own nature explains why he sees the facts. Uh, see you know why he just knows all the all the facts. Um, so that I I mean that's I guess that's my thought on that. That's all I. You know, maybe, yeah, that's really all I have to say on that one. I will point the questioner to the interview that I did with John Martin Fisher. He gave at the near the end of that interview this really interesting, I think, response to this type of question, um, where he it's like a bootstrapping mm -hmm. view, but it was yeah. really interesting. Yeah, so there he there he. Um, he, he's just explaining God's knowledge of, of future free actions there. And mm -hmm. his idea there is, um, well, look, God forms his beliefs about the future the same way you and I do, right? He looks at the evidence. And then he goes, so say, say he, he, you know, that he sees it's 60% probable that you will freely raise your hand tomorrow. So he forms that belief. And then he goes, um, uh, wait a minute, I'm God. I can't be wrong. So then he goes from 60% sure to 100% sure um, based on his knowledge that he can't be wrong. So, yeah, that's kind of his bootstrapping idea there. All right. The next question. Do you view God's omniscience as inclusive of knowing all possible decisions and actions, thereby setting a grander or more powerful God than a determinist view? So I do think God knows what is possible. He knows, um, God knows that uh, you could do this and you could do that. 
So in that sense, he knows all possible decisions and actions, but he doesn't know. So since I'm not a Molinist, I don't think he knows which of those possible things you would do. Um, so he doesn't know um, the CCS. He doesn't know which um, which thing you would do, but he does know all the possibilities. But I don't think that makes uh, God more grand than the determinist view, uh, because on the determinist view, God also knows all possibilities. He just decides to determine uh, a particular one. What makes God uh, grander, what makes the non-determinist God grander, on my view, is that God secures genuine freedom and genuine moral responsibility by not determining everything that happens. All right. The next question from Brando, do you have any issues with the idea that we are co-actualizers with God in this world that he has decided to actualize? Uh, let's see. Well, I don't have any issue with the idea that we're co-actualizers. I think it's up to me, which world is the actual world it's up to you which world is the actual world we all get to uh, help help build the actual world by making decisions um and so god you know god also has his contribution of creating the circumstances in which we freely make our choices but um i'm not sure whether uh, brando meant this or not but on my view uh god doesn't just get to pick a world all by himself he just gets to uh, pick situations to put people in so he gets to pick like a part of a world and then he had to he has to look and see what we do to see uh which world will be the the actual world all right i'm going through the chat i think that's all the questions that we uh that we received so all right i will um end the interview there Thank you so much, Dr. Swenson, for coming on. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. This was, this was a lot of fun. That concludes this week's interview. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider becoming a patron or making a one-time donation. You can find my Patreon and PayPal pages on my website, www.theanalyticchristian.com. I've put the link in the notes for this podcast episode. Thank you to all of my current financial supporters. I couldn't do the work I'm doing without you. Thanks for listening and keep exploring Christianity.